This podcast is brought to you by journalism.co.uk. We bring you the latest jobs from across the media and communications industry. On the job hunt, our job of the week is editor-designate for QMJ Group in Nottingham. For this opportunity and more, visit www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations in the media industry. And today, we'll be taking a look at what it takes to survive as an investigative journalist in today's media landscape. I'm joined by David Lee, an investigative journalist with a career spanning 40 years, having worked with The Guardian and The Observer. His latest claim to fame, however, is his book, Investigative Journalism, A Survival Guide. And we'll be diving into the pages as we talk to David about what it means to speak truth to power and the challenges and threats that poses. Great to have you on the podcast, David. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. Excellent. Uh, to start with, talk to me a little bit about the inspiration for this book, David, and how you have pulled uh, your experiences as an investigative journalist into the book. Well, I've spent more than 40 years in journalism running investigations for The Observer and for The Guardian and on TV programmes like World in Action. And at the end of that, I've accumulated quite a lot of experience of adversarial journalism, which is basically attack journalism, if you like, where you are throwing yourself at powerful people and trying to unearth the truth about what's going on in the world. So I've put down the lessons that I've learned in this book um, in the hope it's going to be useful to young reporters and journalism students of the future. So would an assessment of it be an exploration of the industry now, how it's changed, uh, new threats and ways to safeguard themselves? Well, my real message is that investigative journalism is a dangerous business um, mm. and that what, what you're doing there is um, <laughs> is you're attacking people and drawing blood and you're often getting yourself potentially into trouble as well. So it seems to me that people need a guide, young reporters need a guide to how to do this dangerous job without getting fired, without getting sued, without in some countries getting killed. Well, it is called a survival guide, so perhaps aptly named. And you use that really useful analogy in the book to describe the stakes that are at play, uh, Blind Man's Buff. Can you expand for me what exactly you mean by that? Yeah, Blind Man's Buff is a, a children's game in which one child is blindfolded and then uh, he, he feels around, floundering around with his hands out, trying to find all the others, and they do their best to dodge out of the way. And an old editor of mine, Bruce Page, back in the days when he ran the famous Sunday Times Insight team, used to say investigative journalism was just like Blind Man's Buff, only it was played with open razors. Uh, and I thought that was a very telling image because it tells you just how blundering and dangerous uh, journalism can be, both for its targets, because you're ruining people's lives very often, you're shaming them, you're exposing them, and also very dangerous for the people wielding the razor because the razor can slip and cut you too. So definite caution to be exercised. Uh, thinking about the message you want to put across here, David, what potentially is out there in the real world awaiting unsuspecting journalism students that they might not necessarily be aware of um, at this moment in time? Well, the first thing that most students don't realise is that if you're a journalist, finding stuff out, finding a, an investigative expose is only half the job. The other half of the job is finding somebody who's going to publish it, because it's no good just 
blogging or tweeting because no one is going to take you seriously. If you are going to be working for a serious journalistic outlet, then you're going to have a boss. And that mm. boss is going to determine whether you get your stuff published or not. And this trying to work, live with a boss, trying to live with media organizations is a huge part of the job of being an investigative journalist, because what you're doing is very contentious. You need support to do it. It's expensive. You need lawyer support. You might get sued for libel. So for those reasons, you're going to need a big organization to back you. And the price you have to pay is they've got to be happy about what you're doing. So what are you to do? Get on a editor's good side or is it more about establishing yourself as a reputable journalist? What advice are you trying to give here? One of the problems about investigative reporting is, and I mean, I hesitate to say this because it was like my own way of life, but it can be very very difficult and tiresome for an editor because, you know, investigative reporting is is not predictable. It's not like a factory product where you can say this is going to happen tomorrow and this is going to happen the day after. You never know whether you're going to get a result or not. Furthermore, it takes forever. Uh, it takes a lot of resources. If you're going to find things out, you've got to dig, you've got to travel, uh, you need to work with other people. So from an editor's point of view, this is a budget-busting activity. It may produce very uncertain results. Worst of all, the results you finally produce may be cripplingly boring. Because if you're attacking people and denouncing them in order to stay on the right side of the libel law and other media laws, and if you're to unpick the way criminals and bad actors have concealed things, you're going to have to write in a very meticulous sort of code. And it can be quite boring, you know, and maybe you don't even know all the facts to start with. So it can even be a bit incomprehensible. So there you've got this product. The, the, the journalistic exposure. It's uncertain, it's expensive, it's boring. And then at the end of that, if an editor publishes it, that the sky may fall in, it may be really dangerous. You may, they may get sued. You know, the editor may lose his job because of what you've printed. So that whole task of trying to get an editor to be on your side is a big problem. It's, it's interesting what you're saying because there's definitely some impression that investigative journalism is quite glamorous it's tip-offs and leaks and large-scale exposure is that how it is truly or do we need a reality check well i i go through in the book a lot of case histories of stories that i've been involved in um ranging from the, the, the day we put a government minister jonathan aitken in jail up to the big collaborative journalism data type exposures such as Panama Papers and WikiLeaks that we've done in more recent years. Um, and they've all got some common features. Uh, one common feature is, is that they all take quite a lot of hard work. Um, people who don't know anything about it sometimes criticise what they call leak journalism. They say, if a whistleblower comes to you, then you've just been given a story on a plate. That's not true. When you have a whistleblower come to you, you have to do a lot of work. You have to evaluate sources. Uh, you, you have to try and corroborate them. You have to understand the whole new world because um, the, the thing that a whistleblower is talking about, it, it won't be a world that you belong to or even understand. And you've got to keep going. One of the great lessons that we learned early on as investigative journalists was 
you write one story, that's not enough. You keep writing stories, it stimulates people to come forward. Some of the most dramatic stories we've done, such as uh, the exposure of wholesale corruption by big arms companies in Britain. Uh, the way it worked was that we would keep on writing stories week after week, year after year, and every time we did, it would stimulate a new whistleblower to come forward. So you have to learn these lessons. Keep going is a key one. You touch on your investigation that led to the arrest of the British MP Jonathan Aitken. Uh, in these, what we call post-truth times, is that kind of outcome still possible, you think? Is it harder to do now? And um, how did the context of your investigation compare to what journalists are now up against and facing? Well, we've now got a whole new problem these days, because it's a problem about how to be believed. Because... Back in the day, you know, when you when you had a, a organizations like the old Sunday Times, for example, they dominated the culture in a way. There was a limited number of outlets. And when they did a huge investigation uh, or when we did one on The Guardian, like, like Aitken were able to print a front story saying he lied and lied and lied, um, it changed the world. Nowadays, there's a tremendous amount of noise and there's also a tremendous amount of fake news uh, out there uh, in the in online world. Um, there isn't a hierarchy of credibility anymore. The most carefully researched investigative story that's taken months or years to do and involved a huge team of people looks exactly the same on the screen of an iPhone as yeah. the latest conspiracy theory from Breitbart or somebody like that. So what you're saying is, no matter how watertight or ironclad a report is, the reality is that the students of today, the journalists of tomorrow, will still struggle to be believed. Well, it's worse than that, of course, because the mainstream media, as their opponents term them, the MSM, also have an unsavoury history of, of, of faking. You know, people are right to, to not believe in, in, in fake news. I, I think about something like... Uh, the, the notorious Hitler diary story that Rupert Murdoch's Sunday Times ran, in which they solemnly uh, published what they said were Hitler's diaries that were just a forgery. And then later on, they published a story saying Michael Foote, then Labour Party leader, was an agent of the KGB, which was pure nonsense uh, and eventually exploded. Uh, and some of the modern tabloids have got very unsavoury history of just just running nonsense and untruths and all this degrades journalism in the public eye so you get to the point where people don't know what's true or false anymore it's uh it's a huge problem and i suspect there's no silver bullet to this question but can this next wave of journalists do anything to restore credibility in themselves and in the wider industry well, there are specific things that uh, young would-be investigative journalists can do. Uh, one is there's been bodies set up like the ICIJ, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which is an invitation-only uh, global group, and that if you get accepted as a member there, it's uh, it's a sort of trademark that you are a reputable journalist who, whose work can be believed. Uh, similarly, there are public interest regulators springing up, like Impress, which is one that I'm on the board of, uh, which has got a large stable now of small online startups. Uh, uh, and they produce a logo, trust in journalism, which means that if you're entitled to that logo, then you've got a genuine complaints procedure. And if you tell lies and get things wrong, there's a system for making it right and correcting them. Uh, so I think uh, journalists have got to 
sign up to these things in order to be believed. And they've also got to take on a responsibility to police other journalists and to call them out when they tell lies. Um, for example, there was a, a terrible scandal over the false allegations that Alistair McAlpin, a Conservative Party treasurer, was a, it was, it was a sex abuser, yeah. uh, which, which went out in the end on, the, uh, on New, BBC Newsnight. Calamitous results, uh, which resulted in all those involved losing their jobs. But we... The other journalists on The Guardian and other newspapers, we're the ones who did the work to say, no, this story is false. It's a lie and we should publish it. We had lots of in-house arguments about should we do that? Should that be our job? And I think we should. We've got to call out lies in, in journalism as well as in politics wherever we find them. And that's the only way to restore credibility to us. Do you think the industry gets tarnished with the same brush then? In the book that I've done, which is called A Survival Guide, I've tried to distinguish between the kind of investigative journalism, which is a public service, people who think they're doing a democratic job by being a countervailing power, by holding power to account, and the illiberal investigators, if you like, who spend their time punching down and attacking easy targets uh, that their readers are already prejudiced against. You can all think of examples of tabloids who spend their time attacking poor people, immigrants, outsiders, uh, gay people, you know. Uh, That's not the kind of investigative journalism I want to encourage. I've written this book to try and encourage people to do public interest journalism. Can you tell me why that happens and where that pressure comes from to create those kind of sensationalised stories? Well, there's a lot of newspaper proprietors out there who make a lot of money by whipping up the mob um, and making them furious against easy targets. It's it's an easy thing to do, you know, propaganda, um, mob journalism. Uh, and it's more exciting in a way than just dogged public interest work, which can sometimes be dull, but is absolutely vital for democracy. That's that's a big problem. But is it the only cause of reckless investigative journalism? Well, the other thing that that attracts bad journalists is is crazy conspiracy theories, and and we've seen seen that for decades. You know, all the way back to when President Kennedy was assassinated, and uh, a whole slew of conspiracy theories were generated uh, that this was all done by the CIA or the mafia or something. Uh, all nonsense, but nonsense that sells papers. Um, so I, I really I've got a whole chapter of taking conspiracy theories to pieces and saying you really have to you really have to be more interested in the evidence than in just getting some stupid headline. There's a great quote in the book that says the pre-internet era of journalism looks medieval in comparison to this so-called digital age. Uh, what do you think tech and innovation has done to investigative journalism? What new factors have arisen and what has potentially stayed the same? Well, it's it's true that it's true that the, the advent of um, the internet basically has presented all these problems about what's true and what's false. And it's also tended to knock the bottom out of the economic model for investigative journalism, because in the past, it, when the newspaper package, it was the kind of thing that was subsidized by all the other stuff, the features, the, the weather reports, the classified advertising, and now all that's gone. So it's very difficult for investigative journalists to make a living and to pay the rent. 
But we don't have to be too miserable because one of the things I try and demonstrate is that this is potentially a golden age for investigative journalism. When I started out um, pecking at a typewriter, looking at old clippings that were physically cut out with scissors by newspaper librarians and put in a cardboard folder, mm. all that's gone, been replaced now by an absolute treasure chest of information that with a few clicks you can now find out the most amazing amount of stuff and you can also work collaboratively with other journalists all over the world instantaneously and so you can do global investigations and we've seen amazing ones such as the Panama Papers exposing international tax dodging and the use of tax havens stuff you could have never done in the old days so there's a marvellous future there, technically, if only we can find a way of getting to be taken seriously. <laughs> it's good to know you remain optimistic about the potential of collaboration. But if you think about it, you could also apply the question of trust to collaboration. How do you know who to trust when it comes to who you work with, David? Well, once again, if you work with these organizations like the ICIJ, and there's a number of them springing up. There's many philanthropic organizations as well. That there's like, you know, uh, they're, they're supported by well-meaning donors. There's the Center for Investigative Journalism in this country, and there's the Bureau of Investigative Journalism here, which is, which is supported. There's the ICIJ, which I mentioned. There's another body called the, the, the Global Investigative Journalism uh, Group, the GIJM. Um, by linking up with like-minded journalists. And we, it, one of the nice things we've discovered over the years is that, you know, the traditional model of journalism is that you, you compete like mad and you keep what you found out a secret from other journalists and you try and pre preserve your scoops. Actually, that's very old fashioned. What we've all learned now is that by collaborating with like-minded investigators who've got the same interests as you in heart, uh, you can all... It's a win-win. You can all find out a lot more. And we worked on, for example, you know, bribery and corruption inquiries with journalists in Romania, in Sweden, in South Africa, and we Czechoslovakia, and we all got a result. Some of it's changing the mindset, thinking, who can I collaborate with? Not, I must compete with everybody. Collaboration sounds like a, a lovely idea, David, but does it, as you said, pay the bills and pay the rent well it does yes it does because if you look at if you look at a great exposure like the panama papers or like wikileaks what happens is there's something for everybody you find that journalists in different countries and indeed in different media in like broadcast and print can all find something in, in the, especially in big data journalism projects they can all find something that's relevant to their own home audience so everybody wins and i think if you went and talked to the people who run icij in washington for example with their hundreds of international members you'd find that they've built a model in which everybody wins uh, and of course what this means is you're thinking about yourself as an investigative reporter uh, with comrades all over the world rather than somebody who's just working for one particular local media organization like the daily mail or the guardian or something and trying to rise within it so you you have to have a I suppose you have to be a little bit idealistic about what you think you're doing for a living. But if you if you don't think that what you're doing for a living is 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 worthwhile, is making a difference, why are you doing it? 
yeah, that was my uh, that was my exact thought. I was just thinking that uh, this is all hugely interesting, uh, David. But I have to wrap this up with one last question: What is your number one piece of advice, or perhaps word of warning for young journalists about to step into the world of investigative journalism? You don't today? need elaborate techniques. You don't need complicated computer-assisted skills. What you need is the right mindset. And the right mindset is, is to look at the world and say, what wrongdoing is being concealed? Well said, David. I appreciate you taking uh, the time to share your insights with us. Uh, well, thanks very much. Thanks, of course, to you at home or on the commute for tuning in. If you like what you heard, tune in next week as we reflect on the key findings from a US local news initiative. Before I leave you, a quick reminder that our News & Wire Digital Journalism Conference is fast approaching and you don't want to miss out. It's on the 27th of November at Reuters in London. Uh, for the full agenda and tickets, visit newsandwired.com. Lastly, if you'd like to feature on the podcast, you can always give us a tweet at Journalism News. But that's all from me this week. Until next time.